You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. I never thought of stuff as stressful in the beginning. In fact, my brain told me that it was relieving stress to bring more stuff in because I got to go out and get that shopping high and buy some things and, you know, blow off steam at the mall, uh, which saying it now feels really strange. Uh, but that was definitely the way that I rolled at the end of a hard work week. So more stuff felt like less stress initially. But then when I started to connect the dots and realized that it was leading to more debt, which was leading to more stress and more clutter was leading to more chaos, which led to more stress. I realized I had to kind of reverse engineer the entire process. And as I let go of my stuff, that had a huge impact, bigger than I really thought, because all of that stuff wasn't adding value to my life. It was just reminding me what a mess my life was. That was Courtney Carver, who returns to the podcast today to discuss some of the ideas out of her new book, Soulful Simplicity, How Living with Less Can Lead to So Much More. While many people think of minimalism and unstuffing as merely a way to get rid of stuff, it turns out that there's a very important tie between how much excess stuff we own and pursue and how much room we're making for the things that matter. We explore those relationships and provide one handy way to get back to the heart of what matters in today's episode. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Courtney, thanks so much for coming back to join us today. Um, you were episode 92, um, way back in the days when the Creative Giant, or when the Productive Flourishing podcast was called the Creative Giant Show. Same show, same people, um, the new bottle. So thanks so much for coming back, and I'm really excited to talk to you about minimalism again, and also about your book. Thank you. I'm excited to be back for a second time. Um, alrighty. So, you know, we're not going to talk a whole lot about how you got into writing about minimalism and finding your way there, except for what I'll say is it was actually your diagnosis of MS that got you to really rethink part of what was going on in your life. And, um, that led you to minimalism. And so while we won't tell the whole story, um, because we're going to talk about wake up calls, can you share the, the short story just to catch our listeners up to that? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, uh, MS, multiple sclerosis, that diagnosis was my wake-up call and the start of me changing my entire life. And while I had had other wake-up calls, like we all do, probably 90 times a day, this was the one that I could not ignore and why I decided to change things. And after a few months and actually probably a little over a year, I started to notice that the thread of all the changes I was making uh, were based in simplicity. And then I got really excited about simplifying everything for more health, better happiness, less stress, more love. Yeah. And, you know, the reason I wanted to start there is because um, I think we've talked about this in the past, um, Courtney. I'm I'm much more on the pragmatic minimalist side in that it's like not – 
a um not sort of an aspirational ideology where I start finding stuff like, you know, I'm going to go down to a hundred things or, you know, it's not a big push like that for me, but for me, it's much more pragmatic in the sense of, Hmm, I just feel better when I do, when I have, when I see some stuff and get rid of it and, and things like that. Right. So, um, but what I've noticed through, you know, throughout the years of doing this is that, um, it tends to be wake-up calls that actually push people towards um, minimalism in a certain way. And it could be like, say, Joshua Becker's noticing that his kid was, you know, on the swing in the backyard while he was cleaning out the garage. And then it's like, something's off here. You know, the death of a family member, a, a, a diagnosis. But I haven't seen too many people just wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I think I'm just going to start getting rid of stuff. Um, sometimes it happens, but more often I see like wake-up calls or sort of climatic or catalytic events. So in since you teach this a lot more, though, can you share with us some of the wake-up calls or catalytic events that other people have reported back to you? It seems like most life changes, whether it be changing your diet or simplifying your life or whatever it is, is based in some sort of wake-up call or pattern interrupt. And I've heard from many, many people on the health scare front, I think, only because I've been sharing my story. So whether it's been uh, their own health scare or a health scare within their family, losing a family member, uh, the end of a relationship, sometimes even the beginning of a relationship. Like I've, I've just moved in or married my, uh, the love of my life and he's a complete hoarder or the opposite, something like that. So I think it, it definitely is this, shift. But I've noticed that they're usually pretty major wake-up calls. And I think that's because we have a hard time paying attention and definitely acting on the little ones. Uh, They're hard to hear amidst the chaos and busyness and noise in our life. Yeah. And so I like that because, um, you know, thinking about your story, thinking about other stories, it's not an obvious sort of jump to go from MS or a health diagnosis to minimalism or, you know, um, simplifying one, the stuff in one's life. Right. And so I think the more general version is like, well, there's some health stuff that I'm going to work on, or maybe I'll change jobs or change careers. Um, and, um, I know you had some of those things as well. Right. And so, um, I find it really interesting that it, that in many ways it, it came back to simplifying in general. And, um, I'll let you talk a little bit more about this because I think a lot of times when when we think about minimalism, it is so often focused on stuff, like the stuff in your home, the stuff in your environment. But I think it's broader than that. Um, and so, um, tell us a little bit more about the the broadness of minimalism, and it's not just around you know getting rid of stuff. Sure. Well, for me, it was never about minimalism or simplifying my life. It was just about how am I going to live well with MS? And in all the research that I did, it always came back to stress, eliminate stress, reduce stress, slow down. And looking at my life as a whole, I just had no idea where to start because it was all stressful. So where where could I start? And I figured the one thing that might make a difference right away is diet. How might I change my diet? I wasn't even using terms like how may I, might I simplify my diet or eliminate certain foods, but just how might I change my diet to feel better? And I noticed that the changes I was making really were rooted to simplicity. 
And then the next most stressful thing in my life, which was debt. Uh, and then from there, I, I never thought of stuff as stressful in the beginning. In fact, my brain told me that it was relieving stress to bring more stuff in because I got to go out and get that shopping high and buy some things and, you know, blow off steam at the mall, uh, which saying it now feels really strange. Uh, but that was definitely the way that I rolled at the end of a hard work week. So more stuff felt like less stress initially. But then when I started to connect the dots and realized that it was leading to more debt, which was leading to more stress and more clutter was leading to more chaos, which led to more stress. I realized I had to kind of reverse engineer the entire process. And as I let go of my stuff, that had a huge impact, bigger than I really thought, because all of that stuff wasn't adding value to my life. It was just reminding me what a mess my life was. Yeah. And I think, I, you know, you brought this up in different ways in your book, right? Um, but I think it's also that attached to the shopping high is this idea that, or it's, it's largely a response to the other stressors in our life, right? We want, we want that. And we don't, I think, consciously say that I've got this particular thing in my life. So if I go buy this thing, it will make, make that thing better. Like we don't consciously make that decision, but when you look at a lot of times it's like, we're actually making sort of that thing. Like this is super stressing me out. Um, I'm going to go shop and I'll feel better. Um, and the problem becomes is that not only do you end up with stuff and less money, right? Um, that thing is still there, right? It, it's so in, in some ways, um, the counterintuitive is it, or sort of the counterproductiveness of seeking the shopping high is that it enables you to avoid the problem or at least to like not avoid it. But I think it placates us into thinking like we've done something um, about the problem, but the problem is still going to be there tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Right. And it seems very obvious to me now, but when I was in the midst of it, it really didn't. And I don't think I was, like you said, it, well, I wasn't consciously shopping to relieve the stress, but I really did that, that. I just wanted to get rid of the pain. I wanted something to do to feel better. And that's what I did or, or part of what I did um, versus working on what the real issues were. So the real issue wasn't that I had a shopping problem. Uh, the real issue was that I had some other pain points that I wasn't even close to discovering yet. Uh, that's, what's interesting about it. The shopping is, was just like you said, just kind of a symptom of the other problems. Yeah. And I forget which chapter it was. I'm sorry. I didn't write it down, but where you met, you mentioned some of the reasons why we just um, reflexively buy stuff or we sort of go after the shopping high. Um, I know I talked about a little bit about the myth of ownership and why, uh, why we, I guess why we might buy things. Um, whether it be out of uh, aspirational ownership, like really believing that if we buy this certain thing, we'll be this different type of person in some way, uh, shopping for a life that we want but don't necessarily have. Uh, and then we shop for sure to relieve pain. Um, and that looks different for everyone. Uh, for me, it was a variety of things, but mostly it was the pain of 
not really being myself, stepping out of myself, uh, trying to please other people by acting like someone I wasn't. And we even talked about this on the first podcast that I acted in that way for so long that I forgot who I was. And so this pretending, this routine of being an extrovert, being an awesome networker, uh, wanting to go for it, compete, compare, you know, dollars and deadlines. It was not me. And I forgot that. Like, I really started to believe myself. I was so good at faking it. But that is super painful at the same time. And so all of those things that I was doing um, in terms of shopping were, was to relieve that pain. And once I started to remember who I was and act accordingly, it became easier and easier to let those things go. Yeah. And I think in the same place, you also mentioned um, to relieve boredom, right? We get bored, so we start shopping, right? Um, and the reason I want to put there is because in some ways... Um, this is this is not a shopaholics anonymous you know episode or anything like that. But um, I've found it to be really useful at those times where I've ended up myself ended up in sort of ex- accidental consumerism. Like, why am I here? And here can be at Amazon, right? It can be it can be anywhere. And I actually will start asking like, okay, so am I bored? You know, am I am I feeling bad about something else? Like, am I telling myself that if I just had this thing, that life would be different? So I actually, you know, I've sort of, it's more like a pre-buying checklist, right? So that I don't end up buying this thing. And then two days later, if it's Amazon, right? Two days later, it shows up on my porch and I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, why do I have this? Right? Or when I'm at the store and I'm walking around, you know, with, you know, a few items in my hand, or if it's a bookstore, I'll have like stack of books, Right. Um, and I'm like, do I really, like, am I ever going to read these books? Do I really need to? Like, you know, and so I think part of the trick is catching yourself in the act and being able to sort of, like, not just go from stress stimulus to buying response. Um, and so yeah. I wanted I to pull that say, up. Go oh, ahead. Got, I was just going to say that could go for food and alcohol and all kinds of things too, because we pick, we always pick up something when we're bored or frustrated or stressed, or we just don't want to deal with the feeling. So if we're bored, why are we bored? What might make us less bored? How can we be curious about that? Your line of questioning is so smart because it does give you that pause where you can get curious and think what might be more interesting than clicking buy now on Amazon. Yeah. What might be more interesting? And is it okay to just be bored? Like I'm bored right now. Okay. (laughs) That's a part of life. Like I don't have, like I can either decide to do something that's like not, you know, that's, that's going to excite or interest me. Or I could just be like, you know what? It's four 30 in the afternoon. I'm spent and I'm bored. Okay. (laughs) Right? You'll Why, survive it. Yeah, I'll sur- <laughs> I've, I've survived being bored before, right? Um, or maybe I should go walk around the block or something like that. Like, And so it's it's also, and, and even in the case, you know, I was sharing with you that like, you know, some personal stuff going on in the background that, that's stressful. I'm like, it's actually okay, like to be sad or to be grieving or to be any of those type of things. Like you don't have to fix it, right? And I don't need to pay Amazon or Barnes and Noble or random store of the day, 30 bucks to help me fix something that actually isn't really broken. And it's just a part of what's being human, you know? 
definitely it's okay to feel our feelings, but it is uncomfortable because we're so used to popping that pacifier in as soon as we feel uncomfortable. And I think that's one reason that change doesn't stick because we're not willing to get uncomfortable and to kind of sit in that discomfort. Uh, we just want to fix it right away and feel better. Well, that's interesting because, you know, you mentioned earlier, like it cracks me up because I know you um, in many different ways, right? And so um, I, crack up, I crack up about thinking about you being in a sales position, right? Um, because I'm like, man, Courtney is hella introverted. I'm not saying introverted people can't be salespeople, right? But the whole way in which you describe your career at that time, and I'm like, that is absolutely not you, Right. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I even have a friend from my sales days, a, a very close dear friend, and she's still in the industry, but she and I will laugh. And she's like, I just remember us being at events. And I thought your head was going to explode if I introduced you to one more person. And you know me now today, I'm like, just, I love everyone, but please no one talk to me <laughs> for the next five hours. Yeah, it's like a one one person for five hours rule that you've got there. And it's like, <laughs> we're at a limit here, right? Um, but the reason I was saying, bringing that up, though, is it's what I find interesting in general about people and the way we make decisions is that we are selectively uncomfortable about certain types of discomfort, right? And so when we look at sort of that position, like your job every day required you to be incredibly uncomfortable, Right. And you just sort of either accepted it or you worked your way through it or something like that. Right. Um, and I'm not saying just saying you, I'm the same way. There are certain things in which I'm incredibly comfortable being uncomfortable at. And then there are other things where I'm, I'm complete sort of like, I don't like being uncomfortable there um, sort of scenario. And so I think it's when we start thinking about what types of things make you uncomfortable and understanding that there are some things that are uncomfortable that you still end up leaning into um, into that growth edge of being, you know, uncomfortable but doing it anyways. Um, I think that could be really helpful because I think too often we, we let discomfort get a free ride. Like if it's uncomfortable, we'll just sort of avoid it, right? As opposed to saying like, no, actually, this thing is uncomfortable and I do it every day. So this other thing that I'm uncomfortable about, I can also do that. I just have to find the motivation to do it. Does that make sense? Definitely. I, I don't know who it, if it's, uh, there's an author who says we can do hard things. I think it might be Glennon Doyle, but we can do hard things. And it is true. Um, we definitely can, but we have to keep watching and paying attention to how we act in those moments of discomfort. Like you said, whether we're, pushing that off, whether we're pacifying ourselves, what are we doing and are there healthier ways to deal with it? Yeah. And I find that a lot of the um, types of things, whether it's minimalism or whether it's eating or whether it's, um, you know, exercising, like at least for me, I won't say for everyone, like there's, there's a sort of head game that I got to do sometimes about working out. Cause I'm like sitting on the couch and I don't feel like do it, doing it. Right. And I'm like, Oh, it's going to be the worst, right? And then sort of this sort of head game goes on. It's like you always feel that it's going to be the worst, but you always feel better after you do it. You Like there's not a time in which I've worked out that I haven't felt better for doing it, 
right? But every time, unless I'm just in a really good workout groove, right? And I've just got it going. Every time I'm not in that groove, I'm like, oh, I don't feel like doing this. It's going to be uncomfortable. I got to figure out what I'm going to wear. And it's like five minutes away. Like all these sort of reasons going on. And it's just, I don't know. What's, what's fascinating about it is it's one of those things where it's, sometimes it's just the discomfort of making a micro movement, like getting the hell off the couch, right? Um, and then you like, you know, you're going to feel better with it. Um, and then there's other times in which I know this thing that is comfortable to me now actually ends up not making me feel good. Right. So it's uncomfortable now, or it's, it's comfortable now, but I'm not going to like the result of this. Right. Um, like I love ice cream. Everybody knows I love ice cream. Um, it seems like it always seems like a really good idea at the time. Um, there are plenty of times after the fact where it was not a good idea, <laughs> And I should have passed, right? Um, and so the whole reason I'm talking about this is because I think um, on the one hand, it's really important for you to feel your feelings, right? As we're talking about sadness, boredom, you know, grieving, all those, all the, and all the good ones too. Um, but we have to be careful that when it comes to times of making change like this, that you can't also trust that your feelings are giving you guidance about what to do per se, right? Like feeling uncomfortable and not wanting to do something obviously is not a reason to not do that thing. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. And you're not alone in the, I don't feel like working out or for me, I don't feel like meditating or I don't feel like whatever it is. It's even once I know those things are powerful in my life, even though I know I love doing them once I get started. And even though I know it benefits me later on, I still do the same thing. Well, maybe not now. I can do it tomorrow. But my rule is for all of these things, and I break the rules sometimes, but usually what I tell myself, sort of what you're speaking to your micro actions, is just show up. Just go to the place. Go to the gym, to the treadmill, to the sidewalk, to the uh, your pillow in the bedroom, wherever you're going to meditate or do whatever you're going to do. Just show up. And then you don't have to do anything. And I'll do this little talk with my uh, brain and heart, like, just get up and go in there and then you don't have to do anything. All right. Well, but if you want to, once you get in there, never has there been a time where I went to the gym and thought, Oh, forget it. I'm not going to keep going. So just show up. That's how, how I get through that. Yeah. I try to have a two minute rule about it too. Like when something like this is like decide to do it or not, but don't spend the next two hours deciding and sort of, you know, like if I'm not going to do it, just two minutes, I'm not going to do it. Um, but if I am going to do it, decide in two minutes and then do it. But like the whole him hawing about it. Right. Um, that's like, great. Or beating yourself up, right? Oh, why didn't you go? You're such a loser. I can't believe you didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. It's like either make it two minutes because I think that's the funny thing about some of these decisions, right? Is that there's no amount of information in the world that's going to help you make that type of decision. Right. There's no, there's nothing out there waiting for it. Like if there's something hiding in the bushes, you know, like Sean Spicer, right. You know, there's nothing hiding in the bushes that once you, once you see it, like you're going to know that it's there and it's going to help you make a decision. Sorry. I had to with Sean Spicer. Cause every time I think of some hiding in bushes, I think of him now anyways. Um, <laughs> but there's nothing out there, but I think in some ways we, we tend to in these moments of change and choice, want to bump it to some something out there will make this easier for me, some information, some catalyst. And a lot of times it's just you, you sitting with yourself. And so if you're not going to have any information, you're not going to have that catalyst six hours from now, right? Um, you're, you might as well make a decision in two minutes because like 
the rest of those five hours and 58 minutes, it's just going to be you him hawing about something and you could be doing something else intentional anyways. Right. And so, um, yeah, I know we've, we've detoured a little bit here, but when it comes to making choices about simplicity, I think that's where people get stuck is that they really get into a head game about it. Like if this happens or if this happens, if this were in place, maybe I should start here, which is where I think you have a really simple tool, a really simple way exercise about helping people figure out where to start um, and or what to get, what to let go of. Um, and so this is your put your hand on your heart um, sort of exercise. So, so kind of walk us through that. Sure. Well, kind of what I mentioned before, this whole process of getting rid of things and making space and time for myself allowed me to remember who I was. But part of that process was beginning to listen to what I wanted and to what my heart has to say uh, almost on a daily basis. And sometimes my heart says absolutely nothing, but I still show up because many times uh, I learn a lot. And it's part of my morning routine. So when I sit down in the morning to meditate and write, I also take a little bit of time once I get settled down and quiet to uh, close my eyes and literally put my hands on my heart. So one hand over the other, as if I'm really holding my heart and saying, I've got you, let's have a chat. And then I either listen or I ask questions. And these are questions that I might be thinking about all day long anyway, but they're now very pointed questions and I'm very open to answers. So it might be something like if we're talking about letting go of something, like let's say we're talking, and I, this isn't a specific example of mine, but it could be very helpful for someone who's thinking about letting go of a sentimental item. Should I let go of this item? You know, just something very simple and see what the response is. And sometimes I write down what the feedback is, what's coming back. And then I go further, you know, tell me more about that. Almost like we're having a podcast interview with our hearts. And it's just really interesting because the message that I'm giving myself on a daily basis is I trust you. I trust you. I'm confident in your decision making. You know what you want. So let's get to it. Yeah, and I like the exercise because, again, it's a focusing exercise. And I think what so often happens with people is, again, we, we end up in our heads about this. Like, And um, it sounds funny, but it seems like shoulds live in your head way more than they live in your heart. Right, that idea that you should do this type of thing. Or maybe like that's where all that goes. But I think when you really sit and listen to yourself... Like there are occasional, I think, times where where the where the heart based feedback is you should do this, but I think it has a different like it's more of a pull for you to do something as opposed to you know that third grade teacher with a ruler telling you what you should and shouldn't do type of thing, which I think that that sort of construct lives in your head more often than in your heart, and so I think it's um, that's what I love about it is that it's that focusing exercise and it actually gives you permission not to be in your head. Um, and, and be in a different place. Yeah. And when we talk about brain, heart or head and heart, we could easily replace that with ego and intuition, for instance, or, you know, some people may even make this more of a spiritual thing, more of a prayer based thing. 
but it is having that conversation still with your, like, what's, I don't know, what's kind of your center, um, a grounding. And for me, it's just like putting my hands on my heart seems so natural and it, it just expands from there. So it's kind of coming in and then expanding. And I, again, I don't always hear these amazing answers. Um, usually it's not a lot, but at least I'm asking the questions and I'm starting to think about it. And I'm remembering that it doesn't have to be like this major pro con list or what I think other people want me to do. It's what do I know to be true right now? And what would be best, uh, for moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm going to encourage people like when you're starting to think about making these types of changes and things like this. Um, and Courtney, you may disagree with this one, but I think where I see people get stuck is they go from here's where I am now to some future state. That's so dramatically different than where they are right now. And it seems like they can't move on it. Right. Because how, what's the bridge from here to there. Right. And I think a lot of times like I like to listen for those small things. Like I can do this one thing here, right. Or I can do this one thing there that will push me closer to that. And it's something that um, either it's through training or realization that like, there's always some small action that you can take to get you further. Like you might not ever be able to take that big action, right. At this particular time, but there is this small action. So again, I mean, you know, I, I kind of teased earlier that a lot of times minimalism is about letting go of stuff, right? And so we focus so many of our examples on on that type of thing. But it could also be like, you know, my schedule is way too stuffed and crammed. And there's a lot of things on there that don't have meaning or purpose and probably aren't the most productive use of my time. Rather than thinking I'm going to delete all the things off of the list and, you know, decommit to all these things, just finding one thing and say, you know what, that one meeting or that one thing, I'm going to let that one go. And that's the action that I can take today. Does that make sense? I'm a fan of one at a time, small, tiny change. Because when I think about all the massive changes that I've made, all the big changes is thousands of little tiny changes. It's never one big change. It's never one big thing. So it's always like, there's always this gradual buildup. Even if I don't notice it happening, if I look back, I can see, oh yeah, that's a result of these minutes or these hours or these steps. And every single one counts. So yeah, taking the tiniest steps, they matter. Yeah, the tiny steps taken every day make make for huge, huge changes. Um, and this sort of, you know, we've jumped, not jumped, I've sort of led us towards the busyness aspect of things, right? And um, I'm, I'm so glad this ended up in your book because that's another pattern that I've seen is once people start um, letting go of, you know, some things, they also start letting go of other things, namely the, you know, how much stuff is in their professional life and how much stuff is in their social life that may not need to be there as well. So kind of talk to us a little bit about the journey you've seen from people as they go from um, physical minimalism to other sorts of ways in which they start de-busying and and decluttering their lives. Busyness 
is just as pervasive as clutter in terms of stress and discontent. And at the chapter that I focus most on that in the book is called The Busy Boycott. I pitched a book called The Busy Boycott. I wanted it to write a whole book about this because it, it's just nuts how we waste our time doing things we don't care about, we don't want to do in the name of either proving who we are by what we do. Like, look how successful I am. My calendar is jam-packed. And I only say this out of what I, I know I thought uh, and what I saw people around me doing. Or look how late I'm sending this email. I'm so amazing. I work all hours of the day and night. And we don't always do that to prove to other people, but to ourselves. Like, look how amazing we are. We're working all the time. Uh, we're in such great demand. And that busyness uh, ruined relationships of mine. It compromised my best relationships that I have now. And it made me sick. I mean, just being completely overwhelmed and overextended, overcommitted, it didn't work. And it started by, for me, the way that this all started was uh, stopping the cell phone usage in my car, which is embarrassing to talk about that I even thought that that was okay. But I used to say things like, well, the car's the only place I can get work done. Um, so I would be in the car taking calls, returning calls, checking email and driving down the freeway. And today I don't even like driving down the freeway at all, <laughs> but I couldn't imagine doing it on a phone with a phone on. And yet I see people on their phones in their cars all the time. Uh, and hands-free or not, I'm sorry, we cannot pay attention to driving if we are having a conversation or we can't pay attention to the conversation if we're paying attention to driving. So something is sacrificed. And many times it's uh, human life. So once I stopped doing that and kind of thought to myself, well, you know, now my sales are going to go down. I'm going to lose clients because I'm not as responsive. When I proved myself wrong and my sales went up and no one noticed and no one mentioned it, I thought, where else can I cut back? You know, do I have to show up at all of these events? Do I really have to do all of this networking to be successful? And I ask these questions in my current business because, I mean, I'm sure I could grow faster or be better connected or, but at what expense? I'm not willing to do that again uh, for or more money. I mean, I think that's what it all comes down to or, or success. And if that's how you define success, there are some things I'm not willing to compromise anymore. And so the busyness had to go. Uh, and it makes me laugh because people still will call me, you know, people that I know in my, in my social circles or in my family and say, I know you're really busy, but, and I'll say, I'm probably the least busy person, you know, like I literally schedule time in my day so I can take a walk or a long bath or that's not busy. That's just me saying uh, no, because I don't want to be so busy. Yeah. You know, I've, I've wondered what to do with that because I get that one as well. Like, I know you're busy um, and I just want to run this by you or I know you're so busy. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm with you. I don't know how busy I actually am. I, I prefer, like, I am fully engaged and intentional, right? Like, I don't just have a bunch of time where I'm just sitting there without things to do, right, that I haven't already chosen to do. And so it's true that when someone calls me, 
right, I'm probably engaged in something else, right? Um, but this whole sort of, um, you know, praise of busyness that you just mentioned to mention, I, I don't like it either. And I, obviously, I te- you know, so much of my work is around productivity and things like that. And I think I maybe told you this before, Courtney, is like a lot of people come to me and they're like, well, you know, I, I want to be, you know, they, they'll mention a lot of things. It's like one thing I can't promise you is that you're going to like, you know, have like four hours of, of work a day or things like that. But what I can do is say that the work, the time that you're spending is going to be more intentional, right? The time that you spend in different places is going to be intentional. So you might, your schedule might be just as booked as a way, but we put go to the gym on your schedule rather than just, you know, another, you know, meeting. And we may put, you know, hang out with your kids from, you know, five to eight on your schedule so that it actually happens. Um, and so you might look at it and think, wow, I still have a bunch of stuff on my schedule. But the upside is, is that it's the stuff that nourishes you and it actually makes a difference for you, not just another meeting or not just another networking thing and thing like that. And I think part of the reason we get stuck in the busyness trap is um, because we've conflated sort of hard work and value. Like if you work harder, then you're a more valuable person or you're more deserving of something or something like that. And a lot of times it's just not necessarily true. A lot of times you're working harder so that you can work harder down the line and you reach a certain point where you realize that working harder is not actually going to solve the main problems you want to solve. It's actually going to keep them going or make them worse, right? Well, you need to figure out how not to work as hard. Um, but that's a journey for a lot of people. That's it's not a scheduling journey. It's actually an emotional journey for people to go to go along that. It's it's a change in identity. It's a change in how you see yourself and how you think other people are going to see you, even though they don't notice they're too busy worrying about themselves and how they look to notice what's different about you. Although they might notice if you're a little more calm and uh, peaceful And I think it's so smart, as you mentioned, to schedule these non-work things too, because otherwise we try to fit them in and we work through them, especially as, you know, solopreneurs or people that are kind of doing their own thing. It's so easy to have that time from five to eight with the kids and your phone. And then at the end of that time, no one feels fulfilled. So, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, sometimes when you're when you're looking at people who are either solos or they work in their own business or they just have some sort of flex work arrangement, what ends up happening that makes them um, either busy or overwhelmed is because they're home, people think they can do certain types of things or they take on doing certain types of things. Because like because I'm home while I'm working, I'm also going to be doing laundry in the background. Right. And I'm also going to be waiting for the UPS man to come, right, and drop something else else off. And then I'm also going to, oh, yeah, I've got the crockpot thing that I need to do. And so because we're there, we stack on all these other things. Whereas when you ask, like, if you were at a place where you had an office or you were at work, work for real, would you be doing all of this stuff at the same time? Like, would you be trying to field a call from your mom? right in between work and squeezing things in, or would you just be like, actually, I'm at work right now. Right. Um, I think more people would say I'm at work. Um, now the upshot of that is you can also hack that so that like, if it's five to eight and you're hanging out with your kids, it's like, if you're really being intentional about this, would you be working while you're hanging out with your kids? 
right? In that same way. And most people are like, actually, no, I wouldn't have my computer open. I wouldn't be doing these types of things. Um, and so I think the upshot is that it allows you to figure out, like, actually, to be fully engaged, what would that mean? And what are the boundaries I would need to, to do there, as opposed to it just being this time where you're trying to multitask and do a bunch of things at once, you know? Yeah. And even though you could physically do all those things that you mentioned, you could have the laundry going, the U- waiting for the UPS guy, whatever else you, you could probably physically do it. But could you mentally do that and write a book, write a blog post, uh, send a, a meaningful email? No, you cannot. You, you think you can because physically it's happening, but it's not your best work. There's no possible way. Yeah, it's not your best work. And and I think that's where we get in, in this sort of conversations and we're not going to go around the whole multitasking and, and who's better at multitasking versus who's not. Right. Um, but what I can say is, yes, there you can absolutely send a quick reply by email, maybe six of those. And you can absolutely post something on Facebook. You know, you can absolutely, you know, make a call to, to dry cleaners and see like you can do a bunch of really small, shallow things like that. And I'm not saying shallow is bad, but you can like they don't require that much bandwidth. But when you look at the things that matter most to you, you can't. Right. Um, you can't. You know, if you're a writer, write that blog post, or if you're an author, you can't write the book, or if you're a um, business leader and you need to figure out the strategic plan for the next year, you can't do that, right? Um, and so I think that's where we delude ourselves because like like the closet that's got way too many shirts in it that we're never going to wear, like our days end up becoming full of these little things that they're super stuffed, but they're not really the things that, you know, we want to wear, or they're not really the things that we want to um, be engaged with. And those things always, in my experience, they always get punted to some future time, right? Um, because, you know, right now, well, I'm, you know, shooting off this email and waiting on the UPS person and I'm, I'm looking at the crock pot and, you know, different types of things. And again, it sounds really funny or really like obvious when it's, when it's pulled out and shown in these ways. But it's not how it how our lived experience of it is always, right? Because it's just like, oh, I got to do all these things, and I got to keep up, and I got to keep all of these different pots stirring um, at the same time. Um, when the truth is, you probably don't. Um, so almost always you don't, and and once you go back to the wake up call, once you get that wake up call, and you realize what you are compromising, what does matter most. All of that, oh my gosh, I've got to do this, goes out the window. It really does. And so, so that's one benefit for, wait, for waiting for the wake-up call. It becomes very obvious. But the downside is, I mean, some wake-up calls obviously you can't avoid, but we can avoid burnout in many cases and the, the getting sick and tired and frustrated um, just by taking better care of our bodies, our time, and our space. Yeah. And a lot of times, the link between taking care of yourself and simplicity is a lot of times the way to do that is to simplify things, right? Uh, is to, um, I think maybe I've talked to you about this, Courtney, but there's a line in the Tao Te Ching that goes, um, with knowledge, daily gain, with wisdom, daily loss. Um and the whole point is when we're looking to know more, it's all about learning more and more and more and more and more. But when we're looking at true wisdom, most of the time the choice is 
eliminating something, right? Mm. Um, eliminating something and letting go of something and things like that. So that's why um, Lao Tzu and, and that particular thing counterpose, like, you know, always adding something versus wisdom b- being in letting things go, right? Um, and so I think that's really where this comes from, you know? Yes, I totally agree. And you'll be surprised, I think, or people will be surprised how satisfying it is if they really love making that check or X on their to-do list, how freaking satisfying it is just to cross it off completely or let it, let it go and not move it to the next day. Just be like, I'm not going to do that. The next day you barely remember what it was that you're not going to do anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, to sort of start wrapping things up, you're the guest for today's episode. And so you get to um, invite or challenge our listeners to um, do something based upon the conversation that we've had today. So um, what is your invitation or challenge for listeners to today's episode? Ooh, you think I would have remembered this question from the last time and come up with something very amazing, but I'm thinking of it right now. And I'll just have to go back to our earlier chat about putting your hands on your heart. That would be my invitation is don't worry about creating this massive practice or meditating or anything like that, but just take five minutes and sit down for a minute and put your hands on your heart. And take a few deep breaths and see how that feels. Courtney, thanks so much for um, joining me again. We're talking um, at the end of October, but your book comes out. Let's see what the date of it is. Uh, December 26, 2017. So um, I'm really excited to see um, to see the book come out. And I hope listeners will pick it up. It is called um, Soulful Simplicity, How Living with Less Can Lead to So Much More. Um, Again, thanks so much for joining me again, and I look forward to future conversations with you as well. Me too. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, listener. so you heard it from Courtney. Sit, put your hands on your heart and either ask questions or see what comes up when you give yourself that space. I'm going to encourage you to find just five minutes of quiet time where maybe you're not in the worry of everything and, you know, talk to yourself and talk to your heart to see what comes up for you of, you know, what small thing you might want to change, um, accept, let go of, embrace that will push you further towards joy and simplicity and believe it or not, productivity as well. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.